Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of the TGI Podcast. My name is Ridge Cresswell. I am your host. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this week, we're coming to you a little bit late as a tropical storm uh, came through the Northeast and knocked down a bunch of trees, which then knocked down power lines and caused us to have some technical difficulties. Everything's fine. Everybody's okay. But, you know, a bit of a hassle, a bit of delay. Not a bit of, not, not that bad. Uh, today, um, you'll hear me speak to the author uh, Nandini Bhattacharya, uh, whose book Love's Garden I think is now available for pre-order. Um, I'll include a relevant link in the podcast description. I just wanted to say that we had a great conversation, as I have with everyone who I've spoken to. And as I edit these things, I sort of look at it and I'm like, well, that's kind of the the middle, the middle, and I'm that's where I'm ending it. So I think the thing to do is to just release them. So I think the way this is going to work is a little symmetrically. Uh, you'll see what I mean. I have an idea. Of course, I could completely go back on that, and it might never happen the way that I just claimed that it would. So that'll be fun, uh, if that's what happens. To be perfectly honest with you, I should really write notes when I do the podcast intros, but I'm not much of a notes guy. I don't use notes for questions, for interviews. I don't use notes on the live shows. I don't know. I think I might just be unprofessional, but sometimes it yields wonderful results, especially if the person you're talking to is open and honest. And today's guest definitely is that. Uh, we have a wonderful conversation about getting to know herself through writing, about uh, historical context, about um, you know the ways that her cultural criticism and critical theory background comes into play in her own writing, but also in understanding herself. So I think you're really going to like it. Without further nonsense from myself, Nandini Bhattacharya was born and raised in India and has called the United States her second continent for the last 30 years. Wherever she's lived, she's generally turned to books for answers to life's big and small questions. Her short stories can be found in Meet for Tea, The Valley Review, Storyscape Journal, Raising Mothers, The Bacon Review, The Bangalore Review, Oye Drum, and Ozone Park Journal. She's attended the Breadloaf Writers' Workshop, held residencies at Vermont Studio Center, VONA, and the Craigerden Writers' Residency. She was the first runner-up for the Los Angeles Review Flash Fiction Contest in 2017 to 2018, a finalist for the Fourth River Folio Contest for Prose Prize, and a finalist for the Reynolds Prize International Women's Literary Award in 2019. Love's Garden is her first novel. Uh, she's currently working on a second novel about love, racism, xenophobia, and other mysteries titled Homeland Blues. She lives outside Houston with her family and two marmalade cats. Let's go talk to Nandini. What we have gotten into on previous shows is I'm really interested in people who end up dedicating a large part of their life to writing or art um, because it's something we all do in school when we're growing up, but most people don't take it much further than that. Can you remember like a time in your life specifically where you sort of thought like, oh, I could actually do something with this? Right. So then um, it's a complicated answer because I never really wanted to do anything when I was a kid except read. Nothing. I didn't like board games. I didn't, oh my God, team sports. Oh my God, like nothing. <laughs> I was a totally unsociable child and mm. I was a bookworm. So I, I knew I only liked to read, but mm. 
I kind of wrote a little bit of this and that, and you know, the family was like, "Oh, wow, she's writing poetry." It was very bad. It was like I was eleven, but uh, I did not think that I was going to be a writer. It was not. Uh, I loved reading, like I loved that, and it didn't occur to me to be on the other side. So I think afterwards, coming to graduate school, I drowned, of course, in the misery known as critical theory. Right. And I did, you know, I mastered it, and I just, you know, really knew how to wield it. But during that time, I would say twenty, twenty-five years, it didn't occur to me that I could actually instead do what I. Somehow, I think I had suppressed at some point along the way, because also in like traditional academia in literary studies, I don't know how far you have had the misfortune of being, you know, thrown into those shark-infested waters. It's actually a disqualification if you say that you write fiction or you'd like to write fiction. People kind of look at you funny. Like there's a real schism in English departments between the the, the the critics and the writers. So, I I think I just kind of didn't even imagine that until things happened in my life, or you know, let's just say I was dreadfully disappointed in this or the other, and uh, I started writing in my mid thirties because I was just trying to cope with the misery of. Uh, I shouldn't say this so like loud and and openly, but I mean academia is, with the publish and or perish system is a misery. I was doing well. I was establishing myself. I was getting more secure, but I just knew that this was not what I wanted to do from the bottom of my heart. So I would say around. Late in life, after you know committing myself to academic work, I realized something was telling me that I needed to write stuff, not academic stuff. Mm. So I started doing that literally in an attic in the middle of Indiana, where my first job was. Mm. You know, just kind of crying and writing. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I'm so glad I did that because even though I had no hope, I had no faith, I had no community, I was in a closet literally. It was the one thing that I did that kept me kind of sane. That's something I've talked to other people about, though, is is using uh, or turning to or f even finding these creative things during periods of whether it's like, whether you would call it a crisis or not, uh, might be a bit extreme, but these periods of sort of dissatisfaction or times when the world just isn't sort of shaping up to be what we wanted it to. And also the 30s for me were times when I was, that was a time when I really started becoming aware of issues in my childhood and my past and I started therapy. Okay, yeah, so that goes hand in hand kind of. Hand yeah. yeah. From that, you know, looking back on the family, looking back, it really started with the mythos of the family. That's where it started. Now the novel Love's Garden really draws upon a lot of that mythos, but it's not an exact reproduction of any of the people or anything. 
But really, that was when it's the, the novel began, and it's completely unrecognizable now from that time. But because I was, you know, crying and writing and thinking about my life, um, the therapy, I think, really evoked a number of even storylines. Yeah, I can imagine um, if you're, you know, even if it's not a direct sort of biographical novel i can imagine looking back at your own family uh you would be able to put on maybe the different perspectives of the family members a little bit differently and and both understand why they were the way they were and mm -hmm. why you were the way you were and mm -hmm. sort of really get to the bottom of the dynamics of it yeah but also i yeah and i i mean along those lines not but and along those lines uh, I became interested in a kind of what you would call maybe an archaeology of the self, which is why, I mean, I go, go far back through generations to find myself. There are these half-told, half-believed stories that have circulated in my extended family for generations. And the, you know, the, the protagonists of those stories I never met because they were all dead by then. But... I have been shaped by them. And then when I was in my, you know, in my trough of misery, they came back and they kind of were, I don't know, beckoning and saying, oh, and, you know, maybe this is relatable to something you've heard about me, this dead, long gone. I mean, I really think my foremothers imagined and real in some ways are my muses in, in writing. Yeah. Uh, we, we've talked a few times on the show, uh, the reading series about, you know, uh, intergenerational transmission of trauma. Yeah, You know, exactly. these, these kind of subjects of where, you know, something something difficult or something good that happened to, you know, say your great-great-grandmother does have some effect on you uh, biologically. Especially if it comes down as stories that are almost like biological inheritance. They're like tissue memory. I really believe they're like tissue memory. Yeah, I, I think it's a mix, right? Because, you know, based on your family's experience, you might be more or less likely to maybe exhibit certain traits, experience mm -hmm. certain feelings. And then mm -hmm. when you have the narrative as well, it's like your reality has been created for you and passed down to you. Um, so I'm curious, um, obviously, uh, this is a ridiculous thing to say. So you grew up you grew up in India, correct? Yes, yes, yes. Still I was twenty twenty one. I came to the came to the US for grad school. Okay. So you came to the US for grad school and I, I'm I'm curious, I guess, um has your family you know commented on your writing? Have they seen any of it? Is it something they're interested in? Well, good good question. Um both my parents are now deceased. My dad died last year. So when I, you know, when um, I knew the novel was uh, going to come out, I told him about it. And he said, oh, yeah, I mean, I'd really like to see, uh, see it, you know, have the hold the book. Unfortunately, he died last. So he's never going to see it. Um, I would have liked my parents to read the story, because uh, the, the book, because so much of what I have written in it is uh, stuff I, I got from them. And mm. my family has had some incredible storytellers, and they're very funny. Like, they've talked about, like, atrocious things in the funniest ways, which I don't think I can actually translate <laughs> in writing in English. But, right. so, they are gone. In terms of other people, my current family in India, they don't know 
so much what I write, but they are looking forward to reading. And some of the like few short stories that I've had published here and there, a few of them have read them. They're mixed reactions. My sister says, very depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you write about something cheerful? like okay you do it and i'll write about it <laughs> that's it yeah you can just turn that one around like yeah, why don't yeah. let's go back and have a more cheerful experience in the past i guess but the reason i asked was mostly that uh, it sounds you know i would be curious to hear what if they because this sentence is going all over the place here we go in my own family, we've had times where we've gone back and looked at an experience that we all had, and everyone sees it completely differently. You know, there are things that, to me, would be have been profoundly scarring that my brother barely remembers, and vice versa. Um, but it sounds like you said so. You said you actually got a lot of the material or the stories from your parents and other elders, largely. And other, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, but the problem is those people are actually mostly dead now. However, I mean, among my cousins, my, you know, other members of the extended family who were my, who are my age, I think there will be some recognition of some of the, uh, the details that are, you know, close, you know, very, very close replicas of things that we all grew up hearing about. So there are kind of these family legends, family fables, family tales that will be there. Um, but I, I, you know, I didn't think about this till you asked me this question. I don't think about them very much in terms of the audience as an audience for my, uh, my writing, because about half of my family is English literate and another half is less, less so. So they're not ever going to actually be able to read anything I write in English and really, you know, get into it. It's, it will be interesting to see what they do or what they say when they can read the novel. I really, yeah, now I'm going to actually kind of, yeah. so, okay, one thing I can say, and this is not about how they, how I anticipate them reacting, but maybe even like how I, what I'm a little bit afraid of is that uh, whenever I think you write, especially like a historical kind of uh, novel or story based on, you know, your own family or your experiences, it's a bit like a forensic investigation. And so <laughs> there may be things that people will interpret as skeletons in the closet that I should never have brought up or brought up. But that's why I've tried very hard to be very fictional about. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So we will see what people, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sprinkling in a few um, fictional experiences, heavily changing details, changing names and all that stuff. You know, what, what's the thing they used to say, the names have changed, <laughs> been changed to protect the innocent or whatever? Um, that, that kind of idea. Or, or the guilty, for that matter. <laughs> the guilty that can still get you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so the thing I wanted to circle back to and ask, actually, I was curious about uh, um, two things. One was you mentioned um, you started this novel at, at your first job after graduate school. So how, how not to uh, necessarily overtly date yourself, but how, how long have you been working on this? Oh, very, very long. And I do say that a lot. I make a point of saying that, that I'm like, uh, I'm a plodder. I uh, started writing this, or I mean, again, unrecognizable versions of this. Uh, where there was mainly not even a character or a story, but just a feeling, like a, you know, a deep 
something that probably came out of therapy. Um, uh, maybe when I when I was uh, like maybe in the late nineties. Okay, yeah. So yeah. it's been it's been brewing. That's uh, oh my god, yes. Do you feel like this act, you know, say spending this time on on revising, adapting, shaping this has has that gone sort of hand in hand with your own process of coming to terms with some of your experiences? Um. Good thing, good question. I don't know if I have a straightforward answer, but let me say that the story, the novel, finally gelled for me in 2013. My mother died in 2013, and that in itself was what it was, uh, you know, like a hole opens up in the universe. But around that time, I also read this, I think, incredible book called, you may, you may have read it, it's called The Narrow Road to the Deep North by Manigan. And known. it's a story about mm. World War II and what is called the Eastern Front of the Allied Forces. Mm. Um, nothing to do with me or my family except that some of it is set in, most of it is actually set in Southeast Asia where there was what was called the China-Burma Theater of War, the CBT, which mm -hmm. most accounts of the World War don't pay much attention to because actually even at the mm. time that army there though it was doing critical work about in terms of stopping the Japanese was called the forgotten army like no one paid attention mm. there weren't enough resources China had to be um, really brought in and wooed actually by the United States to to support the war effort and of course they had their own interests because they didn't like Japan right so um, when I read that a lot of stories about what I had actually not even stories more like just kind of snippets like of uh, say doggerels that were uh, sung to me when I was a kid about the, the Second World War and the Japanese coming and bombs dropping on Calcutta all this stuff suddenly started coming back to me and at the same time I started reading up about what had happened to Calcutta during the war and not much had happened, but there, I mean, nothing terrible had happened, but there had been great preparation and fear and all that. And there was this one character I read about, a guy called Maurice Pring, who was an RAF officer, Royal Air Force. And he, um, he died during the war defending Calcutta. And somehow, these details I could see fitting into a backdrop that had already kind of condensed that uh, related to my family and the stories of my family. And what I really was then able to do is fit them together. It's fiction, but not entirely. And so a real characters and real people became a part of this fictional setting where these events of the war were real events. In, in the setting, I mean, in the story and in reality. That was that turning point, 2013, my mom died. I was in a very uh, different place than I had been before, uh, certain issues in my personal life. And then I read about the war and I read the amazing narr narration of Richard Flanagan. And you know, the story's called, novel called Love's Garden and now I'm like embarrassed about the name. But my husband said to me recently, and I, I see the point, um, it's almost like a kind of a satirical name for the fact that mm. a lot of times women's experience of love is like war. 
mm. and mm. maybe it's for men too. But certainly for the the women I talk about in my novel, half real, half imagined, they experience patriarchy and and like the the so-called idea of love and romance and marriage as a kind of extended battlefield, really. Mm. And so. The war of the of the public world and the wars that these women had to fight or are fighting in the novel, um, kind of kind of qualies or, or or coagulate or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. That's when my story got a shape. When I was able to put the war onto the kind of loose limbed family narratives, etc. That's and that's when I realized that I like historical novels because. I, I, my first one is a historical novel, and it gives me a lot of material. Material is important. I, I just can't, you know, do without that. I had, I mean, I had never heard that story of of, of World War Two. Parts of it taking place in South Asia, but no one, most people don't. Yeah. Yeah, but beyond that, even if people from there don't don't exactly talk about it, or maybe you hear bits about it, but that, but I can imagine that putting um, an entire generation's experience of the people around you into a context where yeah. suddenly it makes more sense. Yes. And then what you said about uh, the, their experience of patriarchal, you know, mm-hmm. societal structures and, and, and things mm-hmm. as being battle-like, I think right. that's, that's a perfect mirror, right? That you have this outside terror yeah. and fear and constant on guard. And then you have these yeah. women who are unfortunately experiencing that internally within their families as well. Right. So right. It, that makes a lot, awful lot of sense. Yeah. And the other uh, thing besides the war itself is that the time period, at least most of the time period, is during the British rule yep. of India or the end of empire, mm-hmm. really late empire, end of the Raj, at which time India was also in the throes of so many transitions. Mm-hmm. One, of course, was the nationalist movement. And uh, there's a lot about that in the novel and the the story, the writing in general. But also it was a transition from what one might call tradition to what one might call modernity, like Mm -hmm. a kind of an imperfect modernity from an imperfect tradition kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, 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 And that too is kind of a part of the war that is, is, is a part of the setting and the story in that, there were a lot of people in India who were colluding, right, with the British, because an empire can never run without its mandarins. There's always a, there are always mandarins who make it possible, and so some of the major characters in my story are those mandarins, and then some of the other characters are the ones who are gradually becoming cognizant of the ways in which they are implicated in empire, and they don't like it, and and they and they try to break away from it sometimes without success so there's that and then there is the partition of 1948-1949 which is when india was divided into india and pakistan that's a whole other war i think is becoming more more known now but what happened to indian women during that time and, and and women of now pakistan during that time is a whole other war private wars that many women did fight and then the public wars that nations were fighting and and empire was declining it's, what i can hear there too is i can hear the critical theory parts of your brain i'm sorry <laughs> no, no 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 it's good because you're using them to build something instead of just taking things apart 
I think that's the difference, right? Is you you went from maybe taking things apart professionally, dissecting, trying to understand, you know, to this inner personal experience of trying to write about what you were experiencing. And it seems like, and this might be me just like making things up, but it seems like it was when those two things were able to sort of come together a little bit is when everything kind of clicked because you clearly had had a, t you must have had a ton of training in, you know, understanding things like historical context, understanding the untold parts of stories that are told in those inner details. Does it feel the difference between the sort of uh, dissection or literary criticism versus creating, does it, does it feel different internally? Is it uh, different muscles flexing? Does it give you more satisfaction? It feels like being released to speak about the world and my experiences in it, but also that of what I understand as the sort of history of to, to say something very pompous, humankind, in a way that makes more of a difference. Because sure. people, people listen to stories, you know? And, and in academia, you're not encouraged to tell stories, you're encouraged to, to, to provide critique. Critique is not the same thing. Not everyone's interested in the critique language, right? But a story can uh, provide even the same sort of, you know, pedagogical, do the same kind of pedagogical work far more effectively. So when I uh, compare the things that I've written before, the things that I used to write or read, the, the kind of... Uh, yield of that is is very, very rarefied. And it takes so much work to read that kind of writing and to get the same ideas or understanding of, you know, the world. But then when I can say that or, or try and do that, at least in the language of fiction and in the language of kind of creative writing, it's like a whole, like a whole spring, you know, just starts flowing in ways that I, and that's what make makes me recognize that I, I mean I'm not I may be overstating this but I think this is what I was meant to do I don't think I was meant to do that other thing I think there are other people who are very good at that and they really thrive on that but for me this kind of storytelling is what I really was meant to if there is such a thing as this is what I was meant to do you know, I, 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 you were talking about muscles, um, muscles even moving and changing. Yeah, like I feel like these muscles had lain, these storytelling muscles had lain dormant and had in fact affected my life mm. in, in ways that were not necessarily very good for me. Now that I can actually say, yeah, no, I, I just tell stories, you know, you go do the critique of it. I feel, yeah, I feel better. <laughs> I feel happier. I'm much happier. My own experience has been, I was raised in a family that was very heavy on intellect. Oh, yeah. And that was that was the pursuit, right? Like, my father's a professor. Oh, you know, it's, okay. it's always okay. very, like, and the thing is, if you, for me, if you look at it as sort of the classic, you know, Freud had this idea of the, the iceberg, like your personalities. And so you just see that there's like the very tippity top that's conscious. Sure. Yeah. And then underneath is all this other stuff. That's a beautiful metaphor. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's like, the top melts and then you're like, you know, swimming in this wonderful cool ocean of, of what, what feelings and ideas and images and things of beauty. 
you know academia has no beauty unfortunately yeah mhm exactly what are, where i was sort of thinking about is just in academia you can spend years trying to convince someone to think their way into feeling differently and then in creative work you can feel your way into thinking differently you said it beautifully i wish i i had said that <laughs> that's what i wanted to say <laughs> oh yeah no 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 it's all good i i think that's that's train people to think think their way into their feeling yeah okay 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 that's what yeah. academia does and we try yeah. to do the uh, do it the other way now <laughs> exactly like uh, you could have an academic paper that's you know writing these very cogent logical sentences over and over about how to convince you to change your belief yeah. about something yeah 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 or or you can like you know read a book watch a movie even listen to a piece of music and you might change your mind in an hour yeah I mean there are a few french i think a few french theorists who kind of get very close to doing the our thing with academic work like i think i roll out barth is one of them like the mm-hmm. things he writes like at some point he wrote something about i think a poet is someone who plays with his mother's body like okay mm-hmm. that's that's a whole book we don't need to know anything else <laughs> yeah. you know? that's it yeah. barth you can stop now um that's what i mean that the uh, aphoristic quality even of art of of creative work of beautiful things i mean discourse cannot hope to achieve that i got so tired of that i was just a, yes it was like you know it was like laboring in the mines but i do have to give the you know academia it's jewish and there is a great deal of freedom at least for the for liberal humanists there is a lot of freedom and um i'm tenured and so so far i think i can i can maybe even full time transition into doing into being a creative writer but i guess i'm confessing to a predilection to not wanting to do a whole lot more scholarship at the moment i really just want to pursue this stuff and i think it's a very worthwhile uh, uh enterprise and i honestly don't care what anybody else says about it ah <laughs> uh, right so like i said before that was a wonderful half of a conversation i had with nandini bhattacharya i think it was great um Thank you for joining us once again as always. Uh please follow us on Twitter at @tgicast. You can catch up with me on Twitter at Ridge Creswell. You can catch up with the show's uh talent booker, uh guru creator, secret overlord Trina Tibbo at Trina Tibbs, T R E E N A T H I B S. You can find all the information there about our Zoom meetings, future podcasts, podcast guests, etc. Thank you. Stay safe. Take care.